Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Politicana. Today we are on episode 72. It is April 9th. My name is Tyler and of course, as always, I am with Pratik and Nick. So we're going to kick it off with Pratik this week. How you doing? How's your week been? It's good. Um, I'm excited as usual. I mean, it's a great week. Nick, how's it going? Well, you certainly sound excited, Pratik, but I've got plenty for the audience to get into this week. So we've got <laughs> Katanji Brown-Jackson confirmed to the Supreme Court. We got Stacey Abrams getting involved in Georgia. We've got Nancy Pelosi testing positive for COVID. I think she's like an undead goldfish. I think she's going to live another 200 years. But in any case, let's get into the show today, starting with domestic politics, getting into the Katanji Brown-Jackson story. So she was recently confirmed to the Supreme Court. Three Republicans ended up voting to confirm her at a vote of 53 to 47. And this, this is a big deal for our country, the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. Um, oddly enough, there, people are pretty excited that she's going to be canceling out Clarence Thomas's uh, vote. And he, of course, is the first black man on the Supreme Court. So that's a little ironic in a way. But um, again, I, as a Democrat, I'm pretty happy about this. I know we've talked about this a little bit in the past. Um, so what do you guys think now that she's actually been confirmed? And, and by the way, just for the audience, it's not like she's going in tomorrow. Um, Justice Breyer still has to retire, so that should happen sometime this summer, which is when she'll actually get into get into that seat. Pratik Tyler, what do you think about this historic moment? I think this is Supreme Court as usual. Um, I think this is good. it's actually a very milestone time because this is the last Supreme Court justice we're probably going to see change in a while. Because all of the people that have been appointed to the Supreme Court now are much younger, apart from Clarence Thomas. So Clarence Thomas is the only older person really there. So we're not going to see a new Supreme Court justice get appointed in a while. Unless something happens to Clarence Thomas or something happens, you know, unfortunately to any of the other people. But for the most part, like all of the people that have been on in the last since Trump's Trump's time and Obama's time, they've had like six Supreme Court, you know, justices go through. So this is like, you know, a very cool time because now we're not going to have a new Supreme Court justice in a while. This is going to be the consistent Supreme Court for the next at least decade or so. Yeah, so I mean, the big controversial thing that the Republicans and far right were pushing were that, oh my God, she's soft on like sex crimes, child sex crimes, like she's not punishing these people hard enough, and because of that, we can't we can't let her into the office. Uh, as far as I know, it was only in a few cases. Even still, it is a little fishy. Like that's not something you want to hear from your upcoming Supreme Court uh, nominee, someone who just got put into the position. Uh, but regardless, the fact that she's in there, it is historic in that she is the black, first black female. Um, as we've it's said so many times on the show, though, it is all tainted by the fact that Joe Biden had promised that he was going to be putting a black woman in when he ran for his election. He said that he was putting a black woman in, and he was only looking at a list of black women for this position while he was a president. And because of that, in some ways, it takes away from her and her uh, accomplishments, what she's done. She seems very impressive on her resume. I'm no legal expert, but it seems like she's qualified for the position otherwise. So on that front, I have no issue with her. But just the fact of how she got elected, uh, the fact that it was almost a quota-based position where maybe she wasn't the most merit-based person. It was just she fit the uh, the the look and the, the, the sex of the person that they wanted in office, it's kind of disappointing. So it takes away from her more than anything, but nonetheless, it is historic. And obviously, like, I mean, any Supreme Court justice that has been, ha- that has, um, you know, 
been debated about and i mean it's had an intense confirmation process they all have the same stuff where the party that's doing it are getting attacked by the opposite party and this kind of stuff happened with kavanaugh and this kind of stuff happened with her it's kind of stuff happens with every single supreme court justice whether or not they're controversial or not so all of the political stories that you hear oh man the republicans didn't do this so they're like the democrats you know stood by her like all that stuff is all opinionated stories none of that stuff really matters Republicans are just going to try to do whatever they can to try to not get a Democratic justice exactly. in office. Yeah. And this vice versa. Whenever Dem- whenever Republicans were in office, Democrats did whatever they could to try to not get Demo- try to get Republicans justices in office. So that's just politics as usual. There's nothing important about it. But that was the news stories at the time. So now that she's confirmed, you're probably never going to hear about her again until there's some major case that happens in the next four or five years. Like, well, actually, I think she'll probably come up in the next election cycle. Joe Biden's going to say, look, yeah. I promised this and I got this in place. And Supreme Court was such a big issue, given the, that Republicans were able to put so many uh, people onto the court. We had Donald Trump putting three Supreme Court justices onto the court. And that was so terrible for the Democrats. The fact that he was able to promise something. And again, even though I don't agree with it promised to get a black woman on the court and came through with that that is big in the progressive space i imagine so that's probably going to be coming up in that case but also you're right i mean supreme court nominations they come up during these big cases uh, but sometimes they turn into cultural heroes look at rgb for instance um R- rbg my, my bad <laughs> um sorry uh, nick what do you any final thoughts i was gonna say speaking of cultural icons um i neglected to mention i said erroneously said clarence thomas was the first um black man on the supreme court that's not the case thurgood marshall you know way back early in the century in the 1900s he was the first one on there so clarence thomas is the second and katanji is going to be the third uh black person on the u.s supreme court but in any case so let's get from the historical to to the present, to the present uh, cultural zeitgeist of this country. Another person who's been making waves is Stacey Abrams down in Georgia. Prateek, you want to lay out the story for us? Yeah, so when when Stacey Abrams ended her first bid to become Georgia governor in 2018, she announced plans to sue over the way the state's elections were managed. She, basically, you know, like the general process with elections is that pres- candidates that lose tend to be all pissed off about it and like to sue all the people because they were pissed that they didn't win. Stacey Abrams is another version of that same story, but this is on the Democratic side of the aisle. So Stacey Abrams was one of the most like well-known progressive Democratic candidates. She was supposed to be like the leading, you know, fighter for the gubernatorial election in Georgia. Georgia is one of those states that has kind of turned purple over the last couple of years. And Stacey Abrams um, made a big issue about her not winning the Georgia election, claiming that it was fraudulent and it wasn't managed properly. And that's why she lost. So now that's going into trial in Georgia, and we're going to get to find out more information about Stacey Abrams and whether or not she should have won the election and if there was any type of fraudulent stuff that happened in the election process. So Nick and Tyler, what are your thoughts? So uh, like Pratik mentioned, the proceedings are set to start on Monday. And a big thing, it's not so much about overturning the results of the last election, which is what the Republicans are so hyper-focused on. This is changing the rules of it. She's saying, hey, The way that the state's elections were managed, it was grossly mismanaged and that the election deprived citizens, particularly low income people and people of color, of the right to vote. So this this lawsuit is trying to get the state to change how it ends up implementing these elections. And the reason why this could be a big deal is because as the next Georgia election cycle rolls up, it could change the outcome of that election. 
And so some Republicans are saying, oh, we shouldn't be allowed to change things this close to an election. Of course, like, is anyone on the other side ever going to be happy if a lawsuit is successful and actually changes something? I don't think so. <laughs> so no time like the present. I think it's totally fine. But again, Stacey Abrams has been a huge name in the Democratic Party. You know, the party as a whole, like Joe Biden, he's very much the old guard. And the Republicans have a bunch of old guard as well. But it's like, where where's the new... You know, what is the party going to be like moving forward? Who are the superstars? Is it going to be someone like AOC? Is it going to be someone like Stacey Abrams? It, the party is generally looking for women of color to step up and really lead the party moving forward. It's no longer going to be someone like Nancy Pelosi, whose, you know, time has sort of come. The Senate and Congress have, have moved on quite a bit from sort of the vote wrangling and consensus building that Nancy Pelosi grew up with. And now it's more, you know, heavily polarized. You're not getting much agreement and consensus on things. Although when it comes to Russia, we're pretty much in agreement down the line. But apart from that, you know, folks are still fighting tooth and nail for this. So Georgia could be a big deal, especially because, I mean, typically, at least when I think of Georgia, I think of, you know, the state being a Republican stronghold. Obviously, that's a little different given the recent elections that happened on the Senate side. But still, I think of Georgia as a pretty deeply red state. And maybe that's inaccurate. Maybe it's more purple. But um, ultimately, with Stacey Abrams, someone with that level of national recognition and star power, if she's not able to succeed, it's sort of, to me, it's sort of a signal for people running campaigns in other states to be like, oh, man, if, if she can't win in this state, why should my other candidate you know, be able to win in a place like Alabama or, or Louisiana or something to that effect? Um, but... Tyler, Pratik, what do you guys kind of think about this to cap it off? Well, it's hard to say because it's one of those situations where everything she's saying happened. I think generally people would agree with. We don't want people suppressed. Uh, they had a use it or lose it policy, and they, they said that was suppressing voters. They said they had an insufficient number of voting machines, and that was suppressing voters. There was a lack of training, and because of that, they weren't able to get the votes out. And look, that, that could all be true, but it could all be hokey. I mean, that to me is simply as valid as Trump saying they stole the election from me. Uh, these mail-in ballots were causing issues, and because of that, the whole election was fraudulent. It seems like two sides of the same coin. It also seems like uh, the argument people make for gerrymandering, where, like you mentioned before, Nick, no one's going to be happy if the other side wins. So in this case, if Democrats get what they want, uh, they're going to be very happy, and Republicans are going to say, this is just more regulation for the sake of regulation, and it was not necessary at all. And because of that, there's, there's going to be conflict here. Uh, but overall, I can't say I'm too upset with it. I understand that I don't really like the use it or lose it policy. I think if you are registered to vote, I don't think that should simply go away if you're not voting for a period of time. As long as we can uh, confirm that you still, let's say, live in the state or uh, you're still alive, because I know that that's an issue with dead people voting. Like, we certainly don't that, want that happening. Certainly, people should be trained sufficiently to run these voter booths, and there should be a, a sufficient number of polling places. I don't know how much, big of an issue that is, because I've never experienced that. But hey, maybe in Georgia and some places that is a bigger issue, so I can at least sympathize somewhat. Speaking of uh, Nancy Pelosi, so Nick mentioned Nancy Pelosi when he was talking about superstars in the Democratic Party, or former superstars, which are on their way out. Um, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi tested positive for COVID and was at the White House with President Biden. President Biden kissed, on, President Biden kissed her on the cheek. And there's a big controversy going on about whether President Biden has also gotten tested positive for COVID the or kiss hasn't. Of death. 
And this was a major conversation going on in the press briefing done by Jen Psaki this past week. So, Nick, Tyler, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think that, you know, this is just a random hoax story or, like, if there is any credibility in any of this stuff? Sure, there's credibility, but it's so bizarre to me. Like, if you listen to Jen Psaki giving her press conference, people ended up asking her, the reporters asked her, hey, why, why the arbitrary thing around you have to be exposed to someone in close proximity within six feet for 15 minutes to be considered, you know, in close contact with this person? You know, there was literally a kiss that happened, like, like Tyler joked, the kiss of death. And so how does that not constitute close contact? Even though it was less than the 15 minutes, sure, but why that arbitrary 15 minute barrier? And Jen Psaki, of course, deflects and says, oh, well, the CDC sets that. We listen to the scientists, you know, the same song and dance. <laughs> but again, it's just very strange. As far as whether or not this is real, yeah, it, it, it's real. Pelosi did test positive for it. But again, when you start getting into these conversations around, okay, well, this, this key decision maker tested positive and they had contacts with these other people. I mean, the Clintons tested positive. I know no one cares about them you know, up until some random op-ed comes in saying, Hillary Clinton should run again. At last, her time has come. <laughs> Dear God, please don't do that. But um, I, I think, you know, it's totally reasonable to be asking those types of questions. Because again, to the average person like ourselves, like if someone says <laughs> you can't have close, like was the president in close contact with Nancy Pelosi? And you're like, well, not for 15 minutes. Like, yeah, they literally kissed and like hugged each other. I think that's close contact. So just very strange how they're trying to deflect this. But again, I think it's a nothing burger story. So what? So so many people have tested positive for COVID. Everyone's vaxxed. Joe Biden is literally the president of the United States, gets the best medical care in the world. I don't think this is a major factor. But Tyler Pateek, what do you guys think? Well, I, like, look, hold on. How, when's the last time someone prominent has been diagnosed with COVID and died from COVID? It's like, now we're just saying, oh, this person got sick. Oh my God, an official got, someone got sick. What are we going to do about it? Remember it's like, Herman at this Cain? Point, I think that was Herman Cain, correct? Yeah, but that was earlier on in COVID. But yeah. I'm saying, like, in the past, like, year, like, maybe not year, six months, I feel like uh, many of the death, uh, I haven't been, like, keeping up to date with the death tolls as much, but I certainly haven't heard about all these death rates going up over time. And I'm almost positive the news would be capturing all those stories if it were true. If COVID was once again surging and people were dying from it and everyone was going to chaos, you don't think the media would be causing a storm over that because they can get views from that? I'm sure they would. And the fact that they're not tells me that they have no juice left. They have nothing to back that up. And sure, people get sick and I understand it. But right now it's mostly just a virtue signal. They're going to tell you, guys, we need to separate. We need to mask. We need to do all X, Y, Z, 15 minutes together. And that's how you get it. It's like all of that is just bullshit. It's a say as do as I say, not as I do situation. Like, no one cares at this point. I, I totally agree with you. Yeah, exactly. And in a way, like, look, I'm a Democrat, but on the other side, if you're a Republican asking this at the press conference, I think you have a point because this administration has said, you know, drawn a line in the sand and said, Trump handled this the wrong way. We're going to handle it the right way. We're going to take this thing seriously. And now that no one's taking it seriously, the Republican reporters are asking, hey, Joe Biden was in very close contact with Nancy Pelosi. She tested positive. Why aren't you, the White House, taking this seriously? And then Jen Psaki just has to say, well, we are taking it seriously, so-and-so. We've been taking it seriously for the whole time. That's our whole message is that we take the science seriously. And it's like, yeah, yeah, but at the same time, like, I don't know, maybe you just concede this one point. Like, yeah, he gets daily tests. Don't worry about it. He's fine. We'll let you know if something changes. And Fauci's on their side and Fauci's science. So, I mean, 
Look, they they listen to science. Whenever science was not on their on the Republican side, it was you know the the Democrats were able to be like, yeah, Donald Trump's not doing this properly. Who, but now that science is on their side, do we yeah. have is the is the Republican science Mike Perry? <laughs> who, who do we no, have? no, no. The Republican science was also Fauci, but they just didn't listen oh. to him. <laughs> oh, okay. Gotcha. Now they listen to Fauci, and he still does shady things. So you know. Fauci is the way to go. Well, I haven't I remember, heard about Fauci in a while. I remember Trump with the bleach comment, also about the sunlight. <laughs> you know, he, he had some stuff. I remember there was the solar eclipse. And, I was you know, you're say. not supposed to look directly at it. This madman <laughs> stared directly into the sun, and there's a picture of him just staring right at it as everyone else is, like, trying to shield their as, eyes, as, so... As the legend goes, Trump was the only one who could stare into the sun and not be blinded by the light. <laughs> oh my goodness. But hey, moving along, talking about Trump here, we have Pratik's actual local representative. Ted Budd is running for the Senate in North Carolina, has gained very strong momentum after getting an endorsement for, from, former, uh, from uh, former President Trump last year. And coming into the end of the election cycle, he's looking for another endorsement by Trump. As a quick side note before we, I let Pratik take this, uh, there has been recent news of Elon Musk buying some shares into Twitter. I think he's one of the majority stakeholders now. He has around 9%. And there have been calls for to get Trump back on Twitter, and that would certainly give him another voice. So that would be a big power play in the realm of politics, giving Trump a voice on the social media platform, social media space again, for endorsements like Ted Budd, for instance. So Pratik, what are your thoughts? Um, so our state election is very intense. Um, we had Pat McCrory. I don't know if you guys remember him. He's the whole HB2 guy. Oh, yeah. He's uh, HB2 is still like alive in the in the North Carolina government. By the way, it hasn't really changed. Roy Cooper's been there for six years, and it was the biggest hoo ha moment of the time period. But now that you know he's he's um, Ted Budd's primary opponent, and then you have Mark Walker, who was the study committee chair in the House previously. And Mark Walker and Ted Budd are both from the Piedmont Triad area. So this is a very in, in, um, you know intense situation going on in our election cycle where the election is very tight and very close. But with Ted Budd, who is my local rep, him getting Trump's endorsement, that has meant wonders for him. And he is currently leading the stage in the North Carolina Senate. So hmm. that's all I have there. But speaking so it, of, yeah. It, would you say that's a good thing? Are you a big fan of Ted Budd? Yeah, I mean, he's my rep. I worked for his office. He's fine. I think it's, that's, I, that's I'm just. quite the endorsement from Petit. I am. He was am, fine. I'm biased <laughs> because he's my rep. I mean, if I wanted to go work in politics, who is going to hire me? People that I'm, that like, you know, that I would work for that would be close to here. And Ted Budd's a cool guy. I mean, he's been great for the hotel industry. So, I think Ted Budd's. I think Ted Budd's a better candidate than the other two. Pat McCrory comes with a lot of baggage, and Mark Walker is very socially conservative to the right. So I like Ted Budd more than the other two options, and he's my rep. So that's the cherry on top. Why does McCrory have so much baggage for Deke? Because of HB two, like the whole H. Everyone knows who Pat McCrory is. Whether or not everybody has for, a strong opinion. For those of he, us like myself who whose memory is a little hazy here, what was HB two? In North Carolina, transgender bathroom issue where it was you you if you're a man transition to a woman you couldn't go to the female bathroom but of course no one cares no one's probably even gonna know most of the time and here we are today where it was a huge issue that cost him a lot of political clout and today no one even cares at all. 
And yeah, at the time we were supposed to lose billions and billions of dollars, but we didn't really lose yeah. much because Roy Cooper came into office and the first thing he did was kept HB2 in power. He kept HB2 there. And that's why he won is because he was so anti-HB2. So politics yeah. is politics, man. And in North Carolina, you don't have that many transgender people. So it wasn't a really big issue, but we made it a big issue because we like to put North Carolina in the center stage of everything all the time. And, you know, Roy Cooper's in office, and he's been in office and got reelected, and HB2 is no longer an issue because nobody cares and nobody mentioned it because the Democrats are in office. I was going to say, I'm surprised it doesn't get mentioned more often because nowadays with the trans rights issue, it's mostly around athletics and competing in swimming, for example. And I'm just surprised that that old bathroom bill in North Carolina doesn't get referenced more because, at least in kind of our lifetimes, that's been the biggest controversy regarding trans rights was that that big bathroom thing in North Carolina even when I had never been to the state before I had still heard about it like you were saying HP2 now that you're talking about it, it rings some bells and so that was huge news back in the day and that was like seen as a you know big deal so a little ironic that once the person who was opposing it was actually elected they didn't do anything to overturn it <laughs> but well, you know the point remains that's, that's- that's a good point. I think it would have to have had some conflict. Like, if there was a case in North Carolina where this came into play, I think it would be national news. But the fact that it hasn't come into play six years on, what does that tell you? It's a nothing burger. It was all politics, and it really meant nothing practically for people. One question I had for Pratik, though, is, Pratik, what do you think Ted's Bud's border policy is? Is that something that you were able to get uh, get out when you were in his office? Like, yeah, figure out so what he was thinking about? T- Ted Bud's policies with bo- the border is really similar to Trump's. He is, was all about building the wall. He wanted to make sure that we reduce the amount of immigration that we have from illegal immigrants. And he was, um, I mean, he wasn't part of his main strategy. He just was kind of on the Trump line on a lot of that stuff. He was more involved in banking and that kind, those kind of committees more so than immigration. But his stance was that he was opposed to illegal immigration. And whatever the party does, he did, he would go with it, which is what happens with all politicians whenever they're in office is whatever the party line says, they go with it. Unless you're Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney or Susan Collins, everybody else, they're like, OK, the party says this. we got to go about it, because if we don't, we're not going to be in office anymore. So, and he wouldn't so, have gotten Trump's endorsement. So what are the Democrats doing about the situation? Because you had Trump come into office, had his border policy. We're locking down the borders. Illegal immigrants. What are these scumbags coming into our country? They don't belong here. And then the Democrats go, all right, we need to let these illegal immigrants in. We actually need to fund them on our social welfare programs and allow that all to happen. But now Joe Biden's back in office and there's some kind of conflicts going on. So lay it out for us, Pratik. So this is one of the most um, controversial policies within the Democratic Party that no one really knows exactly what's going on is immigration so this was one of the main talking points right now with a lot of ukrainian immigrants coming in from mexico's border into the america to america uh, illegally and some of that stuff is what's been you know taking over the news as part of the big gen Saki press conference that took place this week so um, after the Biden administration finally ended the pandemic era border restrictions that have allowed the U.S. to expel hundreds of thousands of, of migrants to Mexico, moderate Democrats rebel, joining with Republicans in demanding that they be reinstated. There is a policy the, called the Title 42 policy, which was enacted by the Trump administration in March 2020 when the pandemic started that allowed the U.S. to expel migrants without a hearing more than 1.7 million times. 
And then the CDC was in support of this policy because they didn't know who would have. I mean, that's how they were able to track which migrants that came in had COVID and which ones didn't. Because when you're an illegal immigrant, there's not as much information about you if you have crossed the border, unlike someone that has overstayed their visas. So this has been a massive push within the party because a lot of people are debating whether Title 42 should be removed or not. The Democrats under Biden have had very similar policies to Trump. Nothing really has changed. Only difference is that they're saying they're doing it better than the Trump administration was doing it. But they have, I think, they, or they've had around the same amount of deportations that the Trump administration did. And at least they're projected to in their first two years. So everything is about the same. But when the Democrats were running for office, they were talking about how Trump is a racist and he doesn't like illegal immigrants. He doesn't like immigrants coming in from Mexico. These illegal immigrants are trying to make a better life for themselves. Now, currently in many of their states like Texas and California, where they have border policies, they are leading the charge and trying to prevent illegal immigrants from coming in. While the extreme left part of the party, like AOC, are all about making sure that they're able to get more privileges and rights and Part B members of the social welfare programs, but the moderate Democrats that are currently the ones leading the Democratic Party have very similar policies to what Donald Trump did whenever Donald Trump was in office in everything except the wall. So yeah, so so this is interesting. How often, Pratik, do you talk about how the fact that Democrats are able to get in line, say on any issue, we're going to be a block against the Republicans. We're not going to be divided. But in this case. There is a big division, and this is one of the few cases where there is a big division. And because of the promises they had made in the past and because of their antagonism towards Trump, they have no choice but to really be contradictory to themselves. And I think that's going to cause a lot of division within the party. And that could be an issue going into the next election, although I think that might be superseded in some instances by the economy, let's say. The fact that inflation is going up, prices are going up. I feel like at, at, at certain points, when there are, are jobs on the market and... Uh, people like have the opportunity to get jobs, they're not as worried about immigration because there is still an opportunity to make money. But if everything costs more, that is a big problem for people. And I think that's still going to be their number one voting priority. But I think it's somewhere down the line, it's going to cause the issue for Democrats. And it's going to be an attacking point for Republicans saying, these guys have no idea what they're doing on immigration. At least we have a plan. And maybe the Republicans are going to be more unified than the Democrats on one issue. And I think that's something to see because that's something that's not very common over these past X number of years. Yeah, I agree. I think in the past, Democrats and Republicans weren't divided very much on this issue. And then, for example, before the show, Pratik uh, talked about the Gang of Eight, which is where, you know, Republicans and Democrats together came ahead, you know, passed this bill along to speak then Speaker John Boehner, who didn't decide to act on it. But the bill was approved and had over, I think it was like 64 senators. 68-32. Yeah, 68 senators and it's an insane amount in a bipartisan immigration bill. And that was just what, like four years before Trump was elected? So the parties were very close together on immigration before Trump came into the picture. You'll recall, for example, Jeb Bush, when he was leading the Republican primary at the very start of the election, his whole thing on immigration was, you know, I've got a Hispanic wife. I've got, like, I speak Spanish. I was the governor of Florida, which has a huge Hispanic population. Like, I am going to be, you know, a bridge between, you know, real policy and the people who are, for example, like, just building a pathway to citizenship for the illegals who are in this country right now. I I think that's one thing that both parties were starting to agree on. Trump comes in, demolishes that completely, 
and pretty much single-handedly forces everyone in his party over to his side of the thing. And now that's the mainstream Republican Party. But on the Democrat side, what was it? It wasn't, oh my God, we're, we, we love open borders. We want everyone to come here who can't. No, the Democrats never believed that. But they had to sort of play themselves in opposition to Trump, where previously there was no opposition between the parties. And so now you're in this really weird space where because of COVID concerns, the Biden administration has been turning away tons of immigrants. But on the main but on the other hand, they're saying, oh, you know, we've got to be more humane at the border. We can't be putting kids in cages. And then when it's found out, hey, we're doing something sort of similar, then, hey, at least we're not Trump. At least we're not saying bad things about it. Therefore, you shouldn't be mad at us. So it's this very weird thing where. You know, in terms of border policy, I think most of the country's on the same foot. However, the Republicans are the ones who have the ammunition to say the Democrats are too soft on this, much the same way that they'll say the Democrats are too soft on crime or too soft on, you know, when it comes to foreign policy in terms of war making and, you know, being able to have a straight back and stand up on the world stage, which I think we are. Um, but many Republicans would say we're not. So anyway, that's kind of my two cents on it. Uh, Pratik Tyler, any closing thoughts on immigration? No, I just think that I think the main thing Democrats really need to do is they need to become firm on what their policy is. Most Democrats don't understand what Democrats immigration policy is. Like when it comes to other policies, like we know how Democrats feel about abortion. We know how Democrats feel about you know, environmental policy. We know how they feel about taxation, but we don't know what they feel about when they feel, talk about immigration. And I think, well, all you have to do is we, they just have to be concrete about it. Even if they go back to how it was previously, the original, you know, consensus belief on immigration, that's something. But the Democrats have kind of shot themselves in the foot by being all about open borders whenever they were running in the primaries to what their policy is now, which is about the same as what Trump's was. And I just think that they need to be more concrete on what they want to do so then you as an individual voter understands how the Democrats feel about immigration. And I think Republicans have a lot of these kind of iffy things in our party as well. But in the Democrats, immigration is a thing where every day, if you talk to five Democrats, they're all going to have different opinions on immigration. So It's true. And, and look, with that, let's move on to the uh, international scene. So Obviously, there's a huge conflict going on with Russia and Ukraine. Because of that, there have been many consequences, let's say. So, so Nick, what has happened as of late? Yeah, so um, I guess to connect you to the border story, some Ukrainians are actually coming this very roundabout way where they're going through Mexico and then trying to get into the United States for refugee status um, or for asylum status. But that aside, so Russia was recently booted off the Human Rights Council. But before they were kicked out, they said they quit. You can't fire me, I quit. And so um, the U United Nations General Assembly this past Thursday voted 93 to 24 to suspend Russia with 58 abstentions. That's a lot of countries abstaining and not trying to get involved in this. And so UN regulations require that two-thirds majority of the countries who actually end up voting to expel or suspend members. So because so many countries ended up abstaining, Russia was kicked out, and this is the second country to be kicked off the Human Rights Council or suspended from it, where Libya was suspended in 2011 with everything going on there with the Civil War, and then the United States quit the council in 2018 under uh, President Trump, and then later uh, rejoined under Biden. And funnily enough, when Biden ended up joining, that's actually when, around the time Russia 
was appointed to the UN uh, Human Rights Council because they're not a permanent member. There's about 20 countries who are permanent members, and then you have a bunch who are on rotation. And so Russia was one of those countries who was on rotation. And so it's a three-year rotation. They're about halfway through their rotation, and they're getting suspended. So it's a little embarrassing for them, but a lot of countries brought up these points. For example, you go to Cuba, you go to Libya, you go to Syria, you go to these other countries who say, why are we suspending Russia? The imperialist powers, which, by the way, Russia is an imperialist power, but the imperialist powers, the United States, the West, they've done tons of bad stuff in terms of human rights violations, but no one has cared. No one has kicked them off this council. This is just a political stunt, and this is not true to the founding charter of the United Nations, and we're not holding all countries accountable in the same way. There's this extreme Western bias and you're just focusing it on your geopolitical enemy. That's what China also said. They said this is a rivalry between great powers, which is a little funny. I don't think the United States and Russia are in some sort of... We're in a rivalry, but to say we're both on the same level, I think, is a little bit much. The United States is way beyond Russia in pretty much all of our capabilities, so they're very second class in that regard. But anyway, Pratik Tyler, what do you guys think about Russia getting kicked off the Human Rights Council on Thursday? And again, this was because... 300 civilians were massacred at Buka, which is a town outside the capital of Kiev. Well, look, I mean, Russia was simply defending itself against the Nazi front in Ukraine. They, this is a defensive uh, operation, special op military operation that was simply uh, preserving the democracy in Ukraine. And we've all been a misunderstanding the situation. No, but really, look, the fact that they quit before being uh, kicked off tells me that they want to be back in it at some point. It tells me when they want to come back into the council in a few years, when people forget about the situation, not totally, but largely with time, every, everything is, uh, the pain is softer, let's say. They're going to say, we quit and now we want to be able to rejoin. It's much harder to do if you were kicked off. Uh, so even though they had the vote, I think it was somewhat of a strategic move for Russia to just simply, simply say, we're leaving, we're not going to deal with this right now. But it's certainly not a good look for them. Obviously, they are so committed to this war at this point that they need to go full force. No matter what happens internationally, it doesn't really matter. No matter what sentiment is, is internationally, it doesn't really matter. Many countries are going to still have to rely on Russia for what they produce. Many countries are actually going to get deals on natural gas and oil from Russia because of the situation that's going on, which is why you see so many countries abstaining from this vote. So... I like from their perspective, I understand why they did this, um, but it's also pretty tragic what they've been doing as of late. Just recently, they bombed a, a train station with many, many civilians in it. They're clearly targeting civilians now to pressure Ukraine uh, to kind of uh, to kind of bow under pressure uh, of what Russia's presenting them uh, to make them give up. And that's really, really sad to see. Uh, but over, overall, this is a war and this kind of stuff happens. And Russia's willing to risk everything at this point uh, to, I guess, occupy Ukraine. We still don't know the end game for Russia. Are you trying to occupy Ukraine? Are you trying to integrate them? Are you simply have trying to have a puppet government? What are you trying to do? And is it worth all of what's been going on here? I have no idea. Pratik, what are your thoughts? I'm going to have a little bit of a different take on this. I think that the Human Rights Council is like an elite club. 
like all these other elite clubs where we don't really know exactly what the Human Rights Council does. Most of the members of the Human Rights Council all commit atrocities, whether it's Cuba, whether it's Syria, whether it's Russia, no longer there now, China. Like they're all, it's just an elite club. It's like those environmental clubs that, that, was, that took place or even like the UN to some degree. Like they're just there. If you're a member of that club, it's almost like an elite status. Like, oh, wow, they're a member of the Human Rights Council. How great is that? But in reality, this, these clubs don't mean anything. It doesn't change. Has, it doesn't have any shifts in policies. They don't accomplish anything. They're just kind of there. They're just a front for another organization to make people feel good about themselves. I think Human Rights Council is the same thing. Like, yeah, it's good they got rid of Russia. But in the same token, they should have gotten rid of a lot of countries in the past, which they haven't gotten rid of. Russia is just like the main storyline right now that has, you know, surfaced the news. So everybody thinks it's like, oh, they need to get rid of them. But, I mean, again, they didn't get rid of Syria. Bashar al-Assad chemically gassed all his people. I mean, they didn't get rid of Castro whenever Cuba was there, and Castro was killing his own people. And Iran, I think, is on the Human Rights Council as well. I'm not absolutely sure. But with Russia, this is just one of those that they just kind of became the scapegoat. I mean, they've done a lot of bad things, but the Human Rights Council is a useless organization. So however way you want to pin it, I mean, whether or not that sounds Trumpian or not, I don't know. But in the end of the day, if they haven't done anything to actually accomplish any preventing of human rights atrocities, because half their key members are all the leaders in human rights atrocities, so what difference does it make? It doesn't make any difference to anything and how the world functions. It's all just a way to make it a new storyline. And from a realist perspective, that makes sense. But I think Nick has a, a different opinion. Pratik, you don't think they do anything of use <laughs> in terms of the monitoring, in terms of bringing things to light when there are, for example, ethnic cleansings, when there are genocides, when there are gross you know, abuses of human life and human rights, whether it's in Gaza or whether it's in Syria or you know, pick any place around the world. I think, sure, what you were saying, and by the way, I was incorrect earlier in terms of the 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 amount that are um, elected there's 15 countries on the three-year rotation and i think the permanent standing members i said 20 but it's more it, it's more than 40. um i think they do some good work but again i think your main issue isn't so much that it's yeah. an elite club i think it's that through the body of the united nations you know if, if we grant that it's it's not this super supranational you know power it's not going to say, for example, drag President Trump over to, you know, be or George W. Bush to be accused of war crimes in the United Nations criminal court. That's never going to happen. Um, it, it doesn't have that power. But I think your main contention with the United Nations is more so that it's a toothless organization and it's just there for show. Not so much, which I, I guess is to your point, but I think they do a good job of spotlighting when things are going wrong in the world and they will you know sort of orchestrate and raise funds for observers to get there and really report out on what's really going on from a third party so that we so, don't have to rely on these governments who say oh nothing bad is happening we're just you know there are some bad protesters and they were being bad people and we had to crack down on them they were asking for it I, i'm glad we have observers in these countries so this is how the UN, this is their purpose. The United Nations Human Rights Council is a 47-member body that the UN says is responsible for the promotion and protection of all human rights around the globe. Let me tell you who their members are. Their members are Bolivia, China, 
Cote de Vior, Cuba, France, Gabon, Malawi, Mexico, Nepal, Pakistan, Russian Federation, no longer there, Senegal, Ukraine, United Kingdom, and Uzbekistan. Pakistan has had a lot of challenges when it comes to human rights. Cuba has had a lot of challenges when it comes to human rights. China, they've been complaining about human rights problems for the last like 30, 40 years and they're still doing all the same stuff they were doing because China can get away with anything. And then, I mean, the fact is that a lot of those other countries that I just mentioned that were like core members, like Uzbekistan, we don't really know. They've had challenges in some countries like Gabon. Like the fact is that it's a lot in Russia, obviously. Like the fact is that none of this stuff is really coming to fruition to actually accomplish anything. Most of their members are the ones that are committing all the human rights problems. The only ones that are not on the list are like Saudi Arabia, and I thought Iran was, but Iran isn't Iran. But then all these other countries, many of them, they're not like the cream of the crop countries when it comes to human rights. So I just don't understand the point of why any of this stuff is important. They have all these organizations to make people feel good about themselves and make people feel like they're going to do something to accomplish reducing human rights. But are they really doing anything? No. China has more people killed by the Chinese government than any other country that is a member of any organization. And they're a key member of the Human Rights Council. So what difference does it make that this organization exists? Why do they get rid of Russia when they haven't gotten rid of half of these countries that do all these human rights um, council pro uh, human rights you know uh, atrocities and yeah it was good that they got rid of russia it only took them like so many years to finally start doing what they were uh, tended to do i mean it i mean the un human rights council has been there since uh, like early 1950s so i mean it took them 60 years to actually do something that they were supposed to do so good for good on what, them. kick someone it, off yeah they, they, they didn't have the authority to, they didn't have the authority to do that until recently though they didn't have oh. that until right before libya essentially or they what was it, had Syria? It. Sorry. <laughs> they well, they didn't. Had it. I'm saying, like, they didn't for that long stretch of time, for like 50 years. They weren't allowed to kick anyone off because they didn't have That's that fair. written into the rules. So I don't think we could blame them for that. Do you guys think there's a bias towards international violations of human rights, and that perhaps they're more they're more focused on those? Because like all the nations you listed, many of those human rights violations happen internally. But when it goes into like the grounds of another country, that seems to be when they're stepping up, and I understand that. Um, Maybe. To Pratik's point, I think overall, like power and economics are going to triumph over soft power any day of the week and all the time. But I guess to throw it back to Pratik a little bit is like, would you want a world where we weren't even having those discussions? Like, I know you say it's useless, but simply being at the table is something. Like, even even if it doesn't seem like much, wouldn't you rather have it exist than not exist? And like, internationally, just having a news article going out saying Russia's been kicked off the Human Rights Council, that, it, it says something. And it might not mean much practically, but to even people in Russia, they go, wait, we were just kicked off a Human Rights Council what's going on maybe there's something to this and maybe they don't think that but perhaps it's it's information that's getting into their heads and making them reconsider so in my opinion i understand it's not directly changing the world but i think it has some sort of influence as far as the information game and perspective game goes so what i would say is that maybe i'm more progressive 
then you know many I don't Democrats think so, are on things. I don't think you could say on this. this I can. <laughs> on this I can. I would argue that many of these organizations don't accomplish anything, and the reason they don't accomplish anything is the people that are in the organization. If you have organizations in place that have a sole purpose of elim- eliminating problems with human rights atrocities, they should be doing that. But if an organization isn't doing that, why are we spending a bunch of money to have it in existence in the first place? I don't place? think they're trying to get rid of human rights violations. I think they're trying to spotlight human rights violations but who are the ones spotlighting it countries that commit human rights atrocities my point is that look if you're going to have an organization if the organization isn't going to accomplish anything why spend all that money to have that organization in the first place i can probably pull up a link saying how much america spends on the human rights council because i'm sure it's like we're one of the leading like in contributors to the organization in the first place and my point is that that's a waste of taxpayer money if the organization isn't going to do what they're intended to do it's kind of like if i have a business that isn't operating well why am i spending that much money for that business if it's not going to show any profitability but let's just have it running because you never what know something might happen 20 it, years later what if Who you're knows? quantifying it wrong like again i'm going to restate it yeah. i don't think they're trying to eliminate human rights violations we we know these are going to occur but they can spotlight it to the world when they do occur and at least bring some attention to the fact that these violations are happening. Because let's say we didn't have any of these organizations. Where does that info come from? You have journalists maybe saying, hey, in Ethiopia, 100,000 people just got genocided. Like, is that that's not going to have the same impact as all these countries coming together, whether they've committed violations or atrocities or not. The, the, to me, at least, it adds some value. And I don't think you can quantify it by saying, wow. Bad stuff still happens, so it's not working. No, but I would say that, I mean, if you have an organization like that, they have to be doing something to actually be worthwhile. Because the fact is that a lot of these organizations that we have in place are just organizations in name only. They don't really accomplish much. I'm not saying you need to get rid of it. I'm saying they need to do something. If their whole job is to, you know, reduce the amount of, protect human rights in general around the world, they should be actively trying to do that. And they're not doing anything. It's just an organization in name only. I'm not saying you need to eliminate it. I'm saying that you need to make it work. And if it's not working, why are we making such a big deal about this organization? Why do we spend so much money on this organization? Because if the organization is not living up to what it's supposed to do, well, you're just wasting money. You're not accomplishing anything. All these countries like Gabon and Cuba just feel good about themselves on how well they're making the world a better place. But they're not doing anything to make the world a better place because if they're committing all these atrocities in their own countries and getting away with it, why are they even on the council? in the first place because that's the whole point is they're supposed to protect human rights and they're doing a crappy job at it well with uh gabon and i think you mentioned <laughs> mali you know i, I think that i didn't i didn't f- mention mali but yeah uh, you, you did earlier you did earlier in <laughs> terms right. of them being i just said it, the names so. yeah no yeah. i know i know i'm just saying so on, on that front i think you know some of those countries would again blame the you know historical effects of colonization of imperialism and the rest of it and i think you know for example that's why france is involved in a lot of west africa right now is because one they've sort of been asked by some of the governments to say hey we've got members or essentially what is left over of isis and these other terrorist groups who are sort of scattered along the sahel which are a big problem and so France, of course, gets involved, but then no one's happy that France is involved. So it, it's this really weird thing. But on that front, I, maybe we get back to some of the big players here. Um, what's going on in France, Tyler? They're, they're, you know, gearing up for this election. What's the deal? 
You know, Nick, I'm glad you brought that up because I do have some information on France. So recently, we have an extremely close election between the right-leaning national rally candidate Marine Le Pen ahead of the current presidential uh, president, rather, Emmanuel Macron. So as many of you know, due to the COVID crisis, there has been inflation going through the roof. Uh, and this has happened all across the world. But in particular in France, they've seen an increase in uh, food as well as energy prices. And of course, lower income households are being affected tremendously by this. And because of this, they're angry. And who do you blame when the people are angry, especially on economic issues? You blame the people in charge. Currently, that's Emmanuel Macron. And then on the other hand, you have Marine Le Pen. In 2017, she was seen as a very far-right candidate that was getting some sway in the election, but really got overtaken completely by the time the election rolled around by Emmanuel Macron. Um, but now, it seems like she's turned more of a moderate voice. She's coming and being a little bit more reasonable when these whole situations happened in Russia, where previously she was a very, uh, very fond of Putin in Russia. She came out and said that the actions Russia have taken are indefensible. We know that she is wanting to separate from the EU, and there is a big movement within France uh, to make that happen. Because of that, she's becoming more and more popular. Um, so what do you guys see of this? Do you think this is the growing of a far-right candidate in France? Do you think it's more of a moderate-right candidate in France? What chances do you think Marine Le Pen has in this election? Um, and let's kick it off with Nick, because I know he hates France, so I really want to get that opinion. Sure, happy to do so. Well, it's not that I hate the French people. Um, Maybe the historical French people, but not the current French people. The current <laughs> French people are lovely. I just don't like your ancestors. Um, But in any case, the country itself, I mean, what a mess. You come in, Marine Le Pen was hyped up. I mean, her, her dad was hyped up for decades. And of course, she comes in, her time in the spotlight, everyone else, all the other far-right nationalists are winning across Europe. And then you know what? She gets dumpstered, okay? Macron kicks her butt in 2017. And it's a very sad day for her. But she's making this resurgence. Why? Because all these sort of more moderate candidates aren't delivering on their promises. For example, you know, how could you have ever foreseen something like COVID? That's something that I think voters are willing to give slack on. But they're still going to blame you for the inflation that's happening in the country. They're still going to blame you for the yellow vest protests over hiked up gas prices over your energy policies and your environmental policies that happened um, back a couple years ago. Um, we all remember that that was essentially like we right now we're talking we've been talking about sort of the trucker convoys in the United States and Canada. Before that, it was all these truckers protesting in France because, you know, they felt that their occupation was under attack. And this extended not just to the truckers, but also, you know, throughout more, you know, suburban and rural parts of France, not so much the cities, but again, areas that relied heavily on vehicles or motorized vehicles to get them from place to place, not so much the metros and the buses. But all that being said, I think there are so many factors. And again, there's some domestic stuff too, in terms of cultural issues, in terms of the hijab, in terms of other things where it's like, the, the country right now is struggling with what does it mean to be French? And it's very strange to look at, for example, southern portions of the country, which used to be, you know, hardcore communist or socialist parts of France, which are now turning into far right, far right bastions because all these working class neighborhoods have sort of seen this rise of immigration, have seen France, you know, bring in whether it was the migrant crisis of the mid 2010s or if you're just looking at, you know, the larger Franco francophone you know culture across the world people coming from all these countries to france i, I think the country is really struggling as are these other western countries with what is our national identity what do we base it on and i think for you know this sort of 
you know, Marine Le Pen's portion of the party, it's very simple to say, oh, it, we, we can isolate this period of time where France is doing quite well. Let's go back to that. Let's stick with that. And of course, like you were saying, she's being a little bit more moderate in her messaging this time around. But I mean, let's be real. Brexit, which is a huge disaster for all these far right parties. Once Brexit went through, you know, the British public were like, oh, man, we voted for this thing. <laughs> you know, it felt good to stick it to the man. But, you know, is Britain really doing better economically like they said they were going to do? No, that was a bunch of BS. So I, I don't want to get too much on my soapbox here. Pratik, what are your thoughts? So other things, when it comes to Macron, he also has a lot of economic successes that he can point to. One of them being the French economy is rebounding faster than expected from the battering of COVID-19 with the 2021 growth rate of 7%. That's much higher than what we have under Biden, just to mention that in there. Um, unemployment is down to levels not seen since the 2008 financial crisis when Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th, sparking Europe's worst security crisis since World War II. Macron got a polling bump because he was seen as a wartime leader. Macron has certain things that are his pros, but the problem with Macron is, is that a lot of bad stuff has happened in France since Macron has been in office. Some of that stuff has to deal with him, some of that stuff doesn't have to deal with him, but he was the man in charge, right? So now, if Trump is still blamed for COVID in America whenever Trump was running for office, that was half, a lot of the people were like, oh, Trump's doing a terrible job, or Trump's the reason why we got COVID, etc., etc. A lot of these people would have not voted for him anyway, but that was a big push back then in America. In France, he has the same problems. And in France, they had a lot of violence problems in the early, in 2016, 2017, whenever he won. And it was his first year or two in office. And then you had all these inflation challenges and then you had COVID and then all the stuff that happened after COVID. He has a, he's not the most liked person in the country. He's also ten, he's also a member of the French Socialist Party. So that comes with his own, you know, like you know words and phenomenons when it comes to when people think of socialism but he's technically seen as a centrist and you know in french eyes but the fact is that he had all kinds of problems in his presidency or in his prime ministership and when it comes to that kind of stuff france wants to see a new change and marine le pen has been a major player in the last like decade in terms of french politics and maybe this is a change that they're probably that the people want to have. And she's had challenges too because she was very pro on the leaving Europe, leaving the European Union at the time. But I mean, the fact is that whenever things are going bad, people want change, and the way that people want change is they want somebody that's the exact opposite of the current person. And Marine Le Pen is the exact opposite of Emmanuel Macron. So. I well, I don't know if she's the exact opposite. I would put her the exact opposite of some of the France, you know, more left parties, which yeah. are also gaining at the same time as the right parties are gaining. Um, I think, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but Jean-Louis Luce, uh, Antoine Pierre Mélenchon <laughs> is, uh, <laughs> that is one, of the other the <laughs> one, of, one of the other candidates uh, who's kind of coming up at the same time as uh, Le Pen is. So it is interesting how in these countries both sort of the, the center seems to be collapsing and the two wings of the parties are, are really gaining in terms of their membership and their popular support. So we'll see if Macron can hold for this next election. Amen. And that's generally win. not a good thing for political stability <laughs> when you move away from the moderates. So Horseshoe we'll theory, Tyler, they can just be the same. 
It's true. And look, but in France is known for just pro like, especially the lower class. They love to protest. They protest all the freaking time. So I'm sure we're going to see many, many protests over this. But hey, moving on to the other side of the world, moving Closing on to Pakistan. Story. What so, is going on in Pakistan, Pratik? So Pakistan's prime minister, Imran Khan, Pakistan. faces tough vote of no confidence. So currently what has been happening is that prime minister the prime minister of Pakistan Imran Khan who if people don't know it was really he became elected because he was a famous cricketer in Pakistan in the older days he was one of the greatest fast bowlers in cricket of all time well he when he got elected he was supposed to you know reduce the amount of instability in the country there was a lot of challenges going on and how their domestic policies were happening they have a lot of challenges with India, and usually they get compared, and India tends to be the stronger economic power over the last couple of years since they received independence in 47, and Pakistan received independence at the same time, and they've struggled a lot over the last three, four decades, financially, economically, and in terms of political stability. So... Um, Imran Khan um, is currently having challenges. The people are not fond of how he's running the country. And he's facing a vote of no confidence. And his thing is that because Americans were supporting Pakistan for a long period of time until more recently since the whole Taliban challenges took place, he was complaining about how America needs to support him more and he feels that America is responsible for his vote of no confidence vote because they're not giving him enough funding and money and support. And yeah, it's just Pakistan has its own challenges. They have a, this is a very corrupt government like most governments in that area. I can't really say India's government is that, you know, cream of the crop either. They're also pretty corrupt. And Pakistan has these same challenges. And they're currently with all the tensions that are going on in, with India and other countries around the world. Their Pakistan's government wants a change and they are going to make him the scapegoat because Imran Khan is the current prime minister of Pakistan. So, what are y'all's thoughts on this, if y'all know anything about it? I have no thoughts. I know nothing. I don't want to wade into the India-Pakistan stuff unless it's cricket. In which case, I, I think, <laughs> you know, that could start the next world war. But <laughs> on that front, I mean, Tyler, any closing thoughts? I, I don't have as much insight, obviously, as someone like Pratik. The only thing I have to say is comparing India to Pakistan is like comparing California to the rest of the United States. They're just not on the same level. Come on, Pakistan. You, you're just not on that level. But hey, they have had so many issues. Um, I, I don't think it's going to be solved. Um, and yeah, those are my um, third grade level thoughts on the matter. And with that, Pratik, any closing thoughts? <laughs> No, it's just funny your California to the rest of the world comment. But no, no closing thoughts. Let's see Not what to happens. The rest of the world, to the rest let's, of America, but sure. Let's see what happens with this um, no vote and no confidence vote. I think with Pakistan, they've been having a lot of challenges. Their last really good prime minister that they had was Benazir Bhutto, and she was also assassinated. And a lot of pri pri Pakistani prime ministers end up getting assassinated. It's kind of sad for the country. So we'll see what happens with Pakistan, and we'll find we'll, when we find out more information, we'll bring it on the show. So that's all I have. Of course we will. And of course, that is episode 72 of Politicana. Thank you all for tuning in. Please follow us. Give us a rating on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. Email backofthemob at gmail.com if you want to get your comment on the show or just speak to us to any degree. We'd love to hear some feedback. Uh, but with that, thank you guys for tuning in. And of course, we'll catch you next week. Later.